We are beginning a new series on the book of Proverbs called Everyday Faithfulness. So we know how to take our faith to church, but do we know how to take our faith to our everyday concerns? Uh, Proverbs will help us here. We're calling it Everyday Faith. As Derek Kidner put it, Proverbs puts godliness in working clothes. So for the next nine weeks, we'll not be talking about churchy things per se. Instead, we'll be exploring what Proverbs has to say about friendship or the words we speak, marriage and sex, parenting, wealth, work, plans. But first, before we get into those topics, we need to orient ourselves to wisdom. Wisdom in general, Proverbs in in specific in particular. And the best way for us to do that is with the first seven verses of chapter one in the book of Proverbs. Would you follow along as I read those verses? This is God's word. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord Is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Lord, would you speak this morning for your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there used to be a coffee shop in Muncie, Indiana called the Blue Bottle. And even though I worked down the street at the rival coffee shop called the MT Cup, get it, MT Cup, the MT Cup, every once in a while I would stray from my tribe and study and read at the Blue Bottle. We're talking a football field apart here. This is dangerous. So I have this vivid memory about 15 years ago. I'm in the upstairs room of the Blue Bottle and I'm reading my first theology book. It even had footnotes. And I'm tracking along, and I'm writing in the margins, and I'm starting to understand it. And, and I start thinking to myself, I remember this thought, I don't even need to go to seminary. <laughs> I don't even need to study. I have all the information I need right here and right now. Gratefully, I went to seminary. For you all. Uh, But even there, even at seminary, I had the same thoughts. I had the same exact thoughts. I thought, I know everything there is to know about pastoring a church. Why are there problems in the church? I know the answers. All these people complain about church issues. Well, I have all the right information. And then I became a pastor. (laughs) And I learned on the first day the difference between knowledge and wisdom. I was armed with the very best information about God, about ministry, about the anatomy of the soul. I believe that. 
But information alone doesn't really help you in the counseling room. Doesn't really help you in the emergency room. It doesn't really help you in the living room. The famous biologist, he studies ants, E.O. Wilson. He says this, he says, we are drowning in information, but starving for wisdom. Amen. We are drowning in information, but starving for wisdom. Edwin Friedman, he called this the data deluge. He observed 20 years ago, 20 years ago, that we are becoming data junkies in a data junkyard. He wrote how everywhere in society, and I'm quoting, we have confused know-how with wisdom. And this was 20 years ago. He didn't even know. He died in 96. He didn't even know that there would be such a thing as this. Speak in the Siri, speak to Siri, and she'll give you information in less than a second. I was thinking about it. I think we are becoming more and more like data in Star Trek, the next generation. I don't mean to demean data, but data is an Android. He computes well. But he struggles with real life, doesn't he? In fact, He needs an emotion chip installed into his system in order for him to have wisdom. And sometimes I wish we could have a wisdom chip installed. Where can we find wisdom in a data junkyard? Where can we find wisdom when we are drowning in information? Well, gratefully, God doesn't leave us alone to figure it out. In his word, in his Bible, he provides not just one, but three books about wisdom. Three wisdom books. Proverbs, the book of Job, and Ecclesiastes. And so, as an overview, let's explore godly wisdom generally with three questions this morning. Before we get into the specific topics that Proverbs brings to our attention. And so we're going to ask three questions about wisdom this morning. The first is this, what is wisdom? Number two, where is wisdom? And number three, which might surprise you, who is wisdom? So first, let's start. What is wisdom? Uh, The best definition that I know, and I learned it in seminary. See, I learned it in seminary. The best definition I know is this. Wisdom, if you want to write it down, I would encourage it. Wisdom is the skill in the art of godly living. Skill in the art of godly living. So let's break this down into three sections. Wisdom is an art. The Hebrew word for wisdom used in verse 2 of Proverbs chapter 1, if you look down to know wisdom, it says that word is hokmah. And in the Old Testament, in Exodus in particular, chapter 31, verses 1 through 3, this word, hokmah, is used to describe the artisans of Israel. The artisans who crafted things and made things had hokmah. So we know right away 
That wisdom isn't mere knowledge. Some have called it applied knowledge. It's an art. Which means that we don't just have wisdom downloaded on us when we're born. And frankly, we don't have wisdom downloaded on us when we are reborn, when we are saved and become a Jesus follower. We have to learn wisdom. We need to become apprentices to a master. Which is why in verse 2, if you take another look, verse 2 links wisdom with instruction. To have uh, to know wisdom and instruction. That word could be translated discipline. Proverbs tells us, in other words, that to get wisdom is to be instructed or to be discipled. And there are three main disciplers in the book of Proverbs, which we will find out. The first is God. God is a sovereign overall, the main master. And he sends things in our lives and there are things about him that, that will shape us into wise people. Number two, mom and dad. Much of Proverbs is a dad talk. And then it ends with a mom talk at the very end. Mom and dad. And number three, experience. (laughs) That thing called experience. When you get locked out of your house, that kind of stuff. That teaches you wisdom. So there are three instructors in God's world. Three masters, and we are their apprentice. So, So wisdom is an art. Number two, wisdom is about living. It's skill in the art of Living, living, living. It's not just any art. It's not abstract or abstracted from the world. Uh, And living, if you think about it, if you want to boil down living, you could do a lot worse than saying living is all about what? Relationships. We are relational to our core. And so living is about our relationships to God, our relationship to each other, our relationship to the world that God made. Just notice how relational our passage that we read is this morning. In verse 3, it tells us that wisdom is not essentially for us. To receive instruction in wise dealing, to be wise, but in righteousness, justice, and equity. So right away we learn that to be wise is to bless others. And then in verse 5... We learn that wisdom is about our relationship to God's creation. And then in verse 7, we learn that wisdom is centered on a relationship with the Lord. And all of the topics that we're going to explore in our series on Proverbs, whatever it is, whether it's speech, marriage, children, whatever it is, think about this. It's all connected to relationships. Our relationship to God or our relationship to other people in our life or our relationship to the world God made. Wisdom is an art, but it is an art concerned with living, with life, with real life. And number three, it's about godly living. 
It's skill in the art of godly living. Not just any kind of living, but godly living. Not autonomous Joe Hack living, as if I am, in the words of a philosopher, buffered against everything else. No, this is God's world. This is God's world that we're talking about. And so, verse 7 is the big idea. Remember when your teacher said, find the thesis in this book. Right. If you were asked to find the thesis of Proverbs, where would you go? You would go to verse 7. It's the big idea. And it says this, the fear of the Lord, which is one word kind of. It's like butterfly. You can't divide butterfly and learn much about it. Uh, but fear of the Lord is the same way. We don't just say fear of the Lord and figure out what it means. We have to look at how it's used in the Bible. And we're going to spend all of our next sermon next week on fear of the Lord as we explore our relationship to God. But let me just give you the short version today. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is what you get when you mix the holiness of God and the grace of God. It's when you add together or combine the godness of God and the goodness of God. Because if you have only godness and you don't have goodness, then you will just have dread. But on the other hand, if you just have the goodness of God without the godness of God, without his holiness, you will have boredom. You will domesticate God. As one pastor put it, you might have warm feelings towards God, but it won't be worship. It won't be awe. And that's exactly what fear of the Lord is. It's awe. It's when God is holy and his disposition towards you is friendly because of what Christ has done. And you have in that fear of the Lord. And that is, according to this verse, the beginning of of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. And by that beginning word, we don't just mean the front door. What we mean is the foundation upon which to build. Or as some people put it, it's like letters are to reading and writing and spelling and, and, uh, and composing books. Or it's like how notes are to music. That's how central fear of the Lord is. So wisdom is about godly living. We are in God's world under God's lordship. And so to be wise, think about it, is to connect all of life to the Lord. So what is wisdom? Skill in the art of godly living. And I like this definition a lot, and it helps us all, I think, avoid three common mistakes about the book of Proverbs. In fact, when we decided to go through the book of Proverbs, uh, there were some pitfalls that I was a little bit scared of as a preacher. And this definition helps me avoid these pitfalls. And what are they? Well, the first is this. Proverbs isn't God's little book of promises, which is how we often treat it. But an artisan's guidebook. Proverbs doesn't deal in promises, but probabilities. Because wisdom is art. 
Number two, Proverbs isn't this super spiritual book because Proverbs is all about connecting us to his world, which is earthy, bodily, messy, gooey, dusty, all of that. And he likes it that way. He made it. Proverbs talks about sex and how we talk and our sleeping habits. If that makes you makes you antsy, you're too spiritual than the Bible. You're more spiritual than the Bible, rather. But Proverbs will help us with how to live and how God made us and how God made his world. Number three, Proverbs isn't a self-help book. And this is the most problematic approach, in my opinion, a way to kind of get ahead in life. Instead, Proverbs tells us that true wisdom is humble. Wisdom has a spirit of submission and, and cooperation with how God is and how God made his stuff. So if you put water instead of gas in your new car, you are not cooperating with the maker's intent, are you? Or if you spit into the wind, you're not cooperating with the wind, are you? Uh, Similarly, wisdom is humbling yourself to God's norms. The way he made the world, the way he made you, the way he designed relationships. It's not a prideful book, a way to get ahead. It's the opposite. It's a way to humble ourselves. And to submit to his wisdom. I'm reading a book on poetry right now. And the author recommends using meter and form. And in his argument, he says that when you submit to a given form in any artwork, whatever it is, poetry is just his example. It could be any art. It could be any craft. When you submit to a given form, you are more creative. Uh, it's the paradox of poetry. In his, in his words, uh, you are more free when submitting. Isn't that a paradox? You are more free when submitting to a form. And so it is with wisdom. When we submit to God's form, we become more free. We become more human. We become more alive. And the world will tell you different. They would say, you can, you can get out of the water if you're a fish and have, have a wonderful life. And then when you're flopping on the sidewalk, gasping for air, we all just look away. Oh, they're the exception. Instead, wisdom says, no, get in that water. It's good for you. And experience freedom. And so that's wisdom. What is wisdom? Let's say it together. It's skill in the art of godly living. Good. All right. We had, we had three questions. So that leaves two. What's the second question? Where is wisdom? Where is wisdom to be found? Well, as I said earlier, God gives us three wisdom books in his word, Job, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and each are different, very different, but they balance out the other. And so a wise person will read and absorb all three. Listen, this is very important. Proverbs is very optimistic about order. Think about that. If you do a... B will happen. 
If you've read Proverbs, you know this to be true. And as we get into it, you'll encounter this. If you do A, B will result. My son, he has an electronic um, a circuit board called Snap Circuits. And if you snap this circuit to that circuit, uh, then the light turns on or the fan starts spinning. And we can sort of approach Proverbs. Proverbs reads this way. So if we're not careful, we might conclude, and many people have, if I just snap this here, then my kids will be awesome. If I just snap this here, my business will flourish. Which is why we need Job and Ecclesiastes. Those are wisdom books too. And they have a different take on the circuit board of life. (laughs) Uh, Graham Goldsworthy, he calls Proverbs the perception of order. And then he calls Job the hiddenness of order. In Ecclesiastes, the confusion of order. Remember, Job had everything snapped in place, didn't he? But the light didn't turn on. Job's house fell down on his children. And it wasn't because... He built it poorly. Okay? Ecclesiastes would remind us that all of life is like vapor. When you see that word meaningless in our translations, the word there is hebel, which means vapor. And so the big idea of Ecclesiastes is this. Controlling life is like building a house out of a spray bottle. So, what's that mean? To be truly wise, we need all three. We need all three in harmony. We need the optimism of Proverbs, but we also need Job and Ecclesiastes to sort of sing harmony with that melody line. And sometimes the harmony parts that they sing is in the minor key. But it's God's song. It's his song. What happens if you don't have all three in harmony? Well, let's think about this. If you read Proverbs, and if we preach through Proverbs without Job in mind, then I believe we will be tempted to be either proud or despairing. And nowhere in between. For instance, if we read Proverbs without Job in mind, depending on how our life turns out, we will either be proud or despairing. So if our kids turn out great, then we're going to write books about parenting and we're going to use a lot of Proverbs. And there are many of those. But if our kids do not turn out the way we hoped, then we are despairing and we are thinking every night, what did I do wrong? Do you see? If you read Proverbs without Job, you will be either proud or despairing. If we read Proverbs without Ecclesiastes, I think we will become overconfident. We will confuse the probabilities of Proverbs as promises from God. Sometimes Ecclesiastes would remind us work doesn't get rewarded. Sometimes wisdom to God is foolishness to the world. 
and we'll get you in prison or crucified. Sometimes the wicked do win and the righteous do lose. We need all three. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go through Proverbs and as we talk about parenting, as we talk about money and decision making. Remember, Proverbs is an artisan's guidebook. It deals in probabilities. All right, last question then. Who is wisdom? And this is perhaps the most important question. It might be not unintuitive at first. Who is wisdom? Joe, you're confusing your, your, uh, your, your, your words. Who is wisdom? Wisdom is a thing. Well, listen, as you read Proverbs, you'll start to see something very interesting. Proverbs starts to become personal. It takes on a personal quality, uh, which prepares us for Jesus who is, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.30, the wisdom of God. And so any exploration of wisdom in Proverbs must always be anchored to who Jesus is, because Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. And we have done too much work in Proverbs without Jesus, and it sends us on a moralism path where we think, if I just behave, then God will bless me. But we have to understand that when we see the wisdom in Proverbs, what we are seeing is we are seeing a shadow of Jesus, a foretaste of the perfectly wise one. How is Jesus wisdom? Well, Jesus is wisdom for a number of reasons. I'll go through them quickly with you. First of all, Jesus is our wisdom in how he lived. So Luke chapter 2 says something that's mind-blowing to me. It tells us, and I'm quoting Luke, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This means that Jesus, the God-man, the perfect one, even he had to learn wisdom. So Jesus is our wisdom in how he lived. Number two, Jesus is our wisdom in how he taught. We were in Matthew for quite a long time and we saw this in action. The word for proverb in verse one of chapter one of the book of Proverbs, if you look down, when you see the word, the Proverbs of Solomon, that word there is masal in Hebrew. And masal is a word that is more like poetry than a straightforward speech act. Stephen Fry, do you know Stephen Fry? He's great. I love Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry, he compares a good line of poetry, like one really good line of iambic pentameter. It's just one line. Pick one line out of Shakespeare. And he goes, it's like chocolate. Put it in your mouth and let it melt. And it will invite you in. Anybody who's had really expensive chocolate, does anybody like really expensive chocolate, that really kind of bitter, nasty kind? Well, people who like that kind of chocolate, they don't just bite into that thing like a snicker bar and just chew that thing down. No, they savor it. Same thing with masal, same thing with proverbs. You're supposed to put it in your mouth, let it melt, and it invites you in. Think about how Jesus taught in proverbs and parables. Like poetry, Proverbs don't attack you with information. 
They invite you in. And that's exactly how Jesus operated when he was here. He had every right to just bark commands, didn't he? But he didn't do that. He invited you in with questions and parables and stories. Because those are the things that change you. And that's how Proverbs works. Whenever you see a line of a proverb or, or a couplet, put it in your mouth like dark chocolate. And let it melt. Let it do its work in you. Let it invite you into a way of living. So Jesus taught with Proverbs. He taught with wisdom. Number three, though, Jesus is our wisdom in how he fulfills wisdom. If wisdom is being uh, in healthy relationships, think about this. If wisdom, if you wanted to find wisdom another way, you could say a wise person is healthy in their relationships. Their relationships to God, their relationship to each other, and their relationship to the created order. And so think about it. Who was the perfectly related one to God, to others, into God's world. It's Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, as Graham Goldsworthy puts, puts it, was the perfectly related man. We say a lot about how Jesus obeyed the law on our behalf. But Jesus was perfectly wise on our behalf too. Israel was called to walk in wisdom. Paul says in Colossians 4, walk in wisdom. And before we impart on that walk, we need to see that Jesus, who is our representative, who is the perfect Israel, who is the only perfect human who lived, and he lived his life of perfect wisdom for you, for you, on your behalf. We need to see that and rest in that or else our quest for wisdom will be so self-centered and so self-reliant. It will turn ugly and proud. But what if we rested in Jesus who was greater than Solomon for us? Number four, Jesus is our wisdom in our union with him. Because we are united to Jesus, we are wise in God's sight. And what is more, because we are united to Jesus, meaning we are somehow, the Bible says this, I'm not making this up. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. Which means by his spirit, his spirit is at work making us more and more wise. That's good news. It's not up to us. But God the Spirit is working and committed to our wisdom. And finally, Jesus is our wisdom in his atonement, in his cross. And you might be thinking, what on earth? How is that possible? Well, think about it. The cross makes us wise. That's Paul's big argument, first of all, in in his letter to the Corinthians. Second of all, if you think about this, the cross makes us wise because when Jesus died for our sin, he made atonement. That word atonement means at one meant. It's a word, it's a made up word. It's a word that we made up to describe what happens when Jesus dies in our place. We are at one now with God. When we were enemies with him, his death brought us near. We were enemies with him because of our sin. Jesus died. He absorbed God's righteous, holy wrath in our place. And because of that, we are now at one with God. We have atonement. And so now we have not enmity with God, but relationship with God. And what is a wise person? A wise person is a person who has relationship with God and who is in connection with God rightly and truly. And so the cross makes us 
wise. The cross connects us to God, who some have called ultimate reality. Okay? So, a number of years ago, to bring this home, I was reading a book, another book, another theology book. It wasn't at the blue bottle. It was somewhere else. And it was years later. And I was having trouble understanding it, flowing with it, applying it. And so I had, a, I had this crazy idea. I emailed him. I emailed him. I went online. I found out what his email was. It was listed in the faculty page of the, of the place that he taught. And I emailed him. And guess what? He emailed me back. And he helped me understand his work. It was amazing. I should have saved that email. But it was on Hotmail or something like that. <laughs> Doesn't that scare you about all your stuff on Gmail? Where's that going to be in 10 years? But anyway... Getting off track. (laughs) Jesus, who made the world, who spoke it into existence. Jesus, the true wise one. Is in you. And you are in him. If that's not good news for our journey and the wisdom, I don't know what will be. You can rest. And rest assured that He is at work in you. So as you come along with me on this journey, let's do it with Jesus. And so God, we come to you now, and we pray that you would be gracious to us in our study of Proverbs. Thank you for orienting us to wisdom, helping us see what it is and what it isn't this morning. But Lord, now as we walk into sort of the issues of life, the everyday things that we encounter, would you be gracious to us? Would you help orient us to the way that you made the world? And in doing so, would we become more wise, more truly human, more alive in Christ? It's in his name we pray. Amen.